and I for the Kenai. I'm back here with Coburn today. We're at the Serenity Intake office recording another awesome recovery story. We're here with Nathan today. Nathan, how's it going, man? Hey, it's going great, guys. Glad to be here today with you. Yeah, we're pumped to have you here, man. Mm -hmm. So um, let's dive right in, man. Where are you from? I'm originally from here in Soldatna. Cool, cool, yep. cool. So you grew up here, went to school here, graduated from here, all the stuff? I did. I grew up here, uh, graduated out of Skyview, and then uh, I left for seven years uh, for recovery to Northern California and spent a uh, little over seven years there and then just came back just this last spring to come back home. Nice. Interesting. So um, what was your uh, child like growing up here? My child life, I had a really good childhood. It was, it was a great life. You know, I grew up on the Kenai River, grew up hunting and fishing and camping and uh, for the most part, it was really great life. Um, it was also, it was also really a difficult life at the same time. Um, I grew up with a, with a dad who was, on one hand, a great provider um, and really good to us, but he was also a very difficult man to live with. Um, very controlling, very dominating, um, and uh, which really caused, caused me to grow up. Um, just feeling really, uh, really depressed, really stressed, really um, unheard, you know, um, needing a lot of things um, and, uh, and not getting them, um, not having any outlets to take the things that bothered me, really, right. you know. So I grew up in a Christian home, went to church every Sunday on the outside. It looked really great, um, and it was for a lot of reasons, but, uh, but it was also... A childhood that was, um, I guess I could say, was really, was really lonely, was really stressful, mm -hmm. and uh, it sounds kind of stressful. Voice. And the fact that, like, when you're in situations like that, you kind of feel like you're walking on eggshells everywhere you go. Yeah. Like, especially through your home, like, which is difficult. Actually, that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was a great home to grow up in, but. We did. We walked on eggshells all the time. We were never sure um, what we were going to do that was going to be wrong or that was going to get us in trouble. And so it just caused a, a constant environment of stress in the home at all times. Yeah. So was it more relieving to go to school or just to be out of the house, basically? You know, it was. Um, whenever I got the chance to be in school or, you know, just down on the banks of the river fishing trout with my buddies, um, playing in the woods, building forts, you know, that was, that was, that was great. I have excellent memories of that, but, um, being at home, you know, I look back at my childhood and I realize, you know, I spent most of the time at home in my room mm -hmm. playing by myself, Yeah. you know, um, trying to stay out of my dad's way, um, trying to stay away from him really because never sure if I was going to get in trouble for who knows what, you right. know, and so mm -hmm. I just lived life in my bedroom, you know, mm -hmm. a lot at home. No, that's that's difficult you know what I mean like because in those situations I mean I feel like um, all that stress and tension you kind of carry with you everywhere you know what I mean because you start to like feel that like even when you do get to like go to school and like do these other things you know what I mean it's like that's like what role models look like to you and like yeah. what authority figures look like to you so you carry that like eggshell mentality like everywhere and so like yeah. it's hard to be personable it's hard to be social it's hard to be outspoken because it's ingrained in you to 
not like yeah. to not express yourself to kind of be to stay in your room even when you're not in your room you know what i yeah. mean like as an emotional human being like to stay in your room like that's difficult especially when you're a kid and trying to find out who you are and what you're doing and yeah. where you fit and really how to express yourself too yeah. yeah and as a kid you know you don't you know you don't know that when you're a kid yeah. you know I, I didn't realize these things until I grew up you know and looked back on it and realized what I was going through as a kid mm -hmm. you know and just how stressed out and and honestly how scared I was mm -hmm. um it was really an interesting thing because my dad was never abusive to us physically I mean he took very good care of us he always provided for us he wasn't violent in any way or, you know, foul, but, um, but just psychologically and mm -hmm. mentally, he was very angry. He was very controlling. Um, and it was, uh, in every situation, even the little stuff, it was, it was absolutely his way. And our, pretty much our voices and our opinions just were not cared about at all. So, um, so living under that level of stress and, um, and that kind of, uh, control, was just um it really took a toll on us mm -hmm. you know yeah so how did you find that kind of being on edge how did that affect other parts of your life looking back did it oh absolutely um i never did very good in school um you know i i carried my stress to school a lot i carried my my anger and you know and all of the things as a young boy that i didn't know how to deal with um, I carried that to school. I had I had a lot of trouble paying attention in school, um, and so I really struggled to get good grades. Um, and even all through high school, I uh, I barely graduated from high school. Um, I just couldn't keep my mind there, and mm -hmm. it was always on other things and you know just stuff that I didn't understand how to deal with. And you yeah. know, so yeah, it was difficult. Yeah. Did you struggle a lot with like self worth? I mean, with oh, absolutely. Being yeah. basically told all the time that you know. Yeah, the bar yeah. was set so high in my home. Um, there was just a bar of a, a level of perfection. Everything had to be perfect. Everything had to be right. And uh, and I just grew up in a home where nothing was ever good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, for my dad. And so trying to trying to reach that bar of perfection or to be good enough mm -hmm. I could never do it and so yeah I grew up with a lot of feeling that I wasn't worth it you know that I wasn't valuable and you know I didn't know how valuable I was or if I was mm -hmm. and um and it just really just growing up as a young boy of course you know I tried to please my dad mm -hmm. as, a, as a son and tried to be mm -hmm. good enough but over and over again when I could never do it I just started feeling inside myself that I'm no good. Like, I can't do this. I'm not worth it. I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. And um, I never even realized that until I got older and started getting help and counseling. And I started realizing that I had deep issues of self-hatred inside my heart, right. you know, um, mm -hmm. depression, you know, and uh, self-worthlessness, you know, these these things. And I thought, wow, these are... These are really real. These are really mm -hmm. happening in me. Yeah. You know? We're talking about your childhood, but relatively, you know, like, people that do come... From a lot of stories we've heard, it's kind of... From, from different avenues, it kind of all creates the same sense of a very strong lack of self-worth. You know what I mean? Right. And it creates this... That same kind of like, oh, I'm not good enough for this, or I'm, I'm this, you know? And it's like almost mistaken identities that kids take on from a... Or people take on from just 
different ways, you know what I mean? However that comes. So, like, when that becomes part of your identity, it kind of all starts to feed in to what turns into your addiction. Right. And so if there is anybody struggling with that kind of stuff, what advice would you have somebody for that's, that's struggling like that? It just doesn't really feel good enough. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is the things that we feel are rarely ever true. Mm-hmm. You know, feelings really come and go. But the truth is, is that we are absolutely valuable. We are invaluable. There, there's no price you can put on a person. We are worth it. We're valuable. We're, we're important. Yeah. And for people who are struggling, they need to get to somebody or something where they can see the truth. Mm-hmm. And the truth is important, and that's why we need mentors and counselors and healthy people in our lives that can help us see the difference between what we're just feeling or Mm -hmm. lies that we're believing versus what the real truth is and what the truth in life is. Mm -hmm. And that truth is we're valuable. Yeah. We're incredibly valuable, and there's only one of us. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, man. So where does this all start to kind of turn where does your repressed emotion start to turn into expression through i'm assuming substances yeah as we start to get a little older here so when does that kind of all start that started for me when i was 16 mm-hmm. and and i remember right down to the day uh, very well um for me it was a camping trip and uh with some of my buddies it was the fall of 1996 and we all went camping and it was the first time I'd ever been drunk in my life, first time I'd ever tried drugs. And there was something about being in the midst of that situation that I felt really accepted. I felt safe. I felt kind of alive and fun mm-hmm. because there was nobody there telling me what to do. And I made a lot of bad choices that night, but I felt free. Mm-hmm. And I was with young guys that were my age that accepted me. And I just felt really free and good and safe. Mm-hmm. And we just got plastered drunk that night. And the next day was the first time that I ever did drugs. And it was, it was marijuana. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just remember getting drunk and getting high. There was something about it that was just such a release for me. Mm-hmm. And... And it really did something for me. I, I mean, it was in an illegitimate way. Mm-hmm. But yet the feeling of breaking out of that fear or letting go of all of that stress, I think just the feeling of it numbing out right. was felt so good and freeing to me mm-hmm. that I was hooked instantly. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize I was hooked. But I think that was the first time in my young teenage life that I ever felt a release or a disappearance of all of that stress and sadness. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it came through alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. And with you not being aware of it, it must have been like a background roar. Like, uh, you know, those old TVs, like the big ones that you, you turn them on and they whine like crazy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you get used to it. You don't even mm-hmm. notice it's, it's on. You don't even notice. And then at some point you turn it off and you're just like, oh, my gosh. There's yeah. no the wine's gone, and that, yeah. that that's kind of how I'm envisioning it. Your first experience with that is this background roar of just stress and just you know kind of frustration that you're not really aware of because you're just living life. You don't know what's normal, what's not normal, 
and then uh, you you turn to drugs and alcohol basically, and uh, that just cuts out. And for the first time, you're like, wait a minute, I didn't realize there was an option where I didn't have to feel this way. Right. Yeah. That, no, that's exactly how it was. Yeah. Um, that stress and frustration and um, that depression in my life, it, it became normal. And mm-hmm. once it became normal, I never really thought about it in the forefront of my mind. Yeah. But you're right. You know, that night, I remember that, that getting drunk and getting high. It was a very clear-cut difference in my mind and in my spirit of, mm-hmm. wow, this is, this is amazing. This is, I don't feel this anymore. I feel good. I feel happy. Right. I feel something different. And, um, and that's where it all started for me mm-hmm. was, was that night. Mm-hmm. Yep, on that camping trip. Yeah. And that's a, and I mean, and it's, and it's just one of those things too, you know, or like for a like high school Alaskan, like 16 year old, like going camping with your buddies, you know, like having a couple beers, like partying, you know, whatever. It's like one of these accepted like stereotypes of like high school. You know what I mean? Totally. And like, and, and it's one of those ones too, you know, where it's, it's tricky because, like, you know, I'm sure, like, some of the people you drank with that night are totally fine. Like, and never, like, really developed addictions or never really, like, really hit the fan super hard where it was, like, yeah, it's life kind of got rough and tumble, you know? But it's, like, and it's just different for everybody because nobody knows what's going on in your bedroom. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, behind those closed doors. Like, and for some people, they like it just hits the fan right there. Like you yeah. said, like that's like a significant moment in your life. And for somebody else, that's a story they tell yeah. once every seven years at a reunion of some sort. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, that's exactly how it was. Yeah, like, I still remember those guys that were there. Yeah. And there is only two of us mm-hmm. out of that group of guys that really struggled with, with, mm-hmm. a, with addiction and chemical dependency. Yeah. You know, for the other guys, that was just something fun that they would do on the weekends and they could take it and leave it and go back to their lives. It never, it never hooked them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but for us, yeah. the two of us, it was a game changer, right. you know, it changed the history of our lives forever. Mm-hmm. When I was taking psychology, that's something that they mentioned actually was that, uh, it's, it's genetic even mm-hmm. basically that one person will go drinking and, you know, stop after however many drinks other person will go drinking and black out and struggle with it you know not that those two situations always line up like that mm-hmm. but uh it could even be just genetics like yeah maybe those other people just it didn't it didn't pull them the same way it pulled you but this is like the perfect storm of even if it wasn't genetic that you know all these things are lining up you have uh this kind of approval from these guys because you're all doing this thing. You're kind of in it together kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like, yeah. um, And I'm not, like, yeah. trying to glorify high school drinking by any means because, first of all, it's illegal. That creates a lot of different problems, too. But the other, th- like, where I'm going with that is, like, there's a level of, like, self-reflection that even people, like, as they grow older into adulthood don't, really ever like tap into you know what i mean like and there's some misinformation too about like the legitimacy of like alcohol being a stress reliever you know what i mean to an extent maybe you know what i mean but i think it takes a real level of like looking into yourself and like really thinking like is this the best way to deal with 
the stress I'm feeling, you know what I mean? And do I do it in a healthy way, you know? And like really taking like a solid inventory of like just your life in general, you know what I mean? And things that like the ways you deal with your stress and the way you cope and like the way you hit, cause life gets hard, man. Like obviously like, as we all know, you know, like people listening as they know, you know, like life gets hard, right? but there's true. So how do you deal with like these stressors and things that come up now, now that you do you have this kind of level of well now that i've learned the difference mm-hmm. um of what you know a stress reliever is and what numbing out is right you know and a lot of people say you know you know they come home from work they've had a stressful day you know they have a couple drinks to relax and relieve the stress well that's actually not true mm-hmm. it doesn't relieve stress it numbs it out yeah and that's what alcohol does that's what drugs do real stress relief is when you're stressed or you're having a hard day, you go hiking, mm-hmm. you go fishing, you know, you, you go and you paint a picture, you do artwork, you go hang out with a friend, you do something that's real. Mm-hmm. That relieves stress. Right. You know, when you do something that brings you life, something that brings you joy, that's real stress relief. Mm-hmm. But when you start putting substances in you, alcohol, drugs, whatever, you might feel like it's relieving your stress, but it's not. It's just taking whatever that stress is, whatever that pain is inside of you, and it's just numbing it out temporarily. Mm-hmm. So you might feel relieved. You right. might feel better, mm-hmm. but that's actually not the truth of what's happening. Yeah, you're just kind of forgetting about it for a second. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, because it's so accepted, especially with alcohol. Alcohol's a tricky one. Oh, you know what I mean? Totally. Like, it's like one of the, it's probably... From our experience, like, it's a slight part of everyone's misuse, you know, that, that we talk to, you know, like, at some point they've obviously encountered it, especially if you're getting into some other stuff, typically, but it's this weird, like, food chain of, like, things we do, you know what I mean, or, like, quote-unquote, things we do, but... It's one of those ones, dude, that's, like, absolutely just as dangerous as everything else, and I think, like, that's what needs to be said about it, you know, like, it is absolutely just as dangerous as almost anything else you could pick up. I'm not going to say everything, but almost everything you could else you could pick up. And what makes it so much more dangerous, so much makes it just as dangerous is the fact that it's so widely accepted on a dangerous level. You know what I mean? Like, in high school, there's always, like, there's always seems to be like, oh, that wild kid, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, he goes to parties on the weekends. He, oh, man, that guy blocks out every weekend. Like, we can't wait to see what he or she does next, you know? Yeah. And it's like this oddly, like, this odd misconception of, like, okay, when really, like, probably need some help, you know? And, like, that kid probably has some underlying things that are really going on. You know, so just, like, as people in our community kind of got to be aware of these things and be ready to ask those tough questions like what like are you sure you're okay you know what i mean like are like what's going on like outside of this you know what i mean like it's true yeah it really is hard it's alcohol is a is a very controversial subject you know there's a lot of people that can enjoy it and have fun with it and and they're fine you know and they're Mm -hmm. not doing it for the wrong reasons right but the thing is, is alcohol is such an easy substance to numb yourself out with that mm-hmm. if you're hurting, if you're in pain, it's so easy to just drink alcohol and, you know, and feel better temporarily. Right. You know. 
is always one of my favorites, dude. Is uh, I can't remember who told us, but it's uh, I think it was a counselor, and it's uh, it's the for now stuff. You know what I mean? Like it'll numb you out, and you'll be okay for now. But one day, two days, two months down the road, one drink's gonna turn to two, and two to three. You know, for people that struggle with it, obviously. Yeah. I mean, some people go their whole lives and are hundred percent fine. You know, I'm not raging the war on alcohol, but like for people that do struggle and have some underlying issues that are just, and they really know that they're trying just to numb something, it'll work for now. And then that stuff that's inside is going to come rearing its head one of these days and well, cause and that's, some problems. That's the exact problem because the truth does not stay hidden. Mm -hmm. At some point in life, the truth of what's going on inside of you is going to come out. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when you try to keep it buried and, you know, keep it numbed out, it usually ends up coming out in a really ugly way mm -hmm. or in a hurtful way. Right. And uh, that's the thing about the truth. It just, it'll come out and make itself known eventually. Right. You know? I think that's something with alcohol especially. There's a kind of a line that it's like socially acceptable and you can kind of blur that line into where does it become a problem, you mm -hmm. know? And where Definitely. is that line? And, yeah. you know, that's not really necessarily true for something like painkillers because if you don't have some like some kind of pain you're in right. and you're taking one every day, yeah. it's immediately like... Or oh, you don't have a prescription. Or, right, you're yeah. not going to be like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not... You know, this is just recreational. You might say that, but it's pretty <laughs> obvious that that is a, a problem. Yeah, and it's but, not culturally accepted to yeah. recreationally use painkillers. Right, know? right. But yeah. then with alcohol, you can blur that line until Absolutely. it becomes a big problem. Because mm -hmm. who's going to tell you? Which, which one of your friends is going to tell you? Yeah, uh, I think you're drinking too much. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe, maybe someone will just tell you it's straight a good up. Friend. But yeah. yeah, exactly. But unless you're having some self reflection, that's uh, that's that one can sneak up on you. I think definitely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. So where does uh, where does the truth come rearing its head for you throughout this? For me, it took me until I was about thirty years old mm -hmm. before before the truth really started coming out and making itself known to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember a day I was sitting at a stoplight in town waiting for it to turn green. And all of a sudden, it just called an epiphany or self-revelation, whatever. It just dawned on me, and I realized I was a drug addict. I'd never admitted it to myself before. From the time I was 16 until I was, yeah, right about 30, maybe 31, and I remember sitting in my car that day thinking, I'll be darned, I can't believe this. Like, I really am a drug addict. This really happened to me. Mm -hmm. And that's when my eyes started getting opened to the truth of my life. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up, you know, I grew up going to church every Sunday, grew up, you know, mm -hmm. just, you know, a good kid in a lot of ways, right. with, you know, a great family, you know, and all of mm -hmm. this. And, uh, and so one half of my life looked really great. Mm -hmm. But through the years of, of drug addiction, you know, my life began to become more and more unstable. Yeah. Um, I, more of my relationships started to fall apart. And to where it was really good versus the end of it, um, you know, in my early 30s, I looked at my life and realized I had become a person that nobody wanted around. Mm -hmm. My friendships were all over. My family didn't feel safe around me anymore. I was getting arrested left and right 
thrown into jail multiple times for a little stuff here and mm-hmm. there. And I had become a person that was dangerous, unstable, unpredictable, angry, mm-hmm. lost. And I looked at myself for the first time in my life and realized, this is real. This is, this is who I've become. Mm-hmm. And that's, that was when the truth really started coming out. Yeah. So what were those signs that you didn't see? Where did it start falling apart after 16? Where did these um, things that you're, you're not really paying attention to start kind of creating problems in your life? I think... When I, when I made the choice to start doing drugs and look away from the truth of my life is when it all started falling apart. That's, mm-hmm. that's the beginning of it. But the thing is, at 16, you know, young teenage men and probably women too, we don't have the ability to understand these things. Like we mm-hmm. haven't matured enough and grown mm-hmm. enough in life to have a mindset to even be able to know what's wrong right. with us or how to deal with that. We, mm-hmm. you know, young people don't have that yet. And so, you know, when I was young and I fell into marijuana, um, and that was my drug of choice all my life. That was the real addiction for me. Mm-hmm. And from that, you know, there was a lot of other drugs that I messed around with. Um, but with the pot, I just, I dove into it so deeply because of what it did for me. Mm-hmm. It was just enough that it changed life and reality just a little bit to where all that stuff didn't hurt anymore, mm-hmm. you know, and all those, the people in my life that hurt me or stressed me out or they couldn't really get to me yeah. through that illusion, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so once I dove into that and I made that my life, I never cared or thought or even knew to look at my problems. I didn't know I had them. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that yeah. I hated myself. I didn't know that I was stressed out and that I was sad and depressed. I had no idea. All I knew was that I love smoking pot and I love what it does for me. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. became my life. And um, once I started it, I never stopped. Mm-hmm. And I was smoking marijuana almost every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes multiple times a day. Yeah. So, like like you said, you didn't know, obviously, how you felt, right? Um, so, looking back now, what did that look like? Just, you know, in case there's any, like, parents listening or anything like that that may see some of these same things in their kids and not, like, that you should accuse your kids of smoking pot, but, you know what I mean? Like, kind of be on the lookout for some of these things. Let me let me rephrase my question a little bit. For parents that, that may be out there and listening, like, what were some of the things that, if you were to be asked, might have helped you kind of come out of your shell a little bit and be able to kind of really express these things that you had been repressing for so long? Um, let me tell you my first memory that, that comes to mind of, mm-hmm. of how my parents dealt with me. Right. Um, so in, in the mid-'90s, when I started doing drugs, um, and my parents found out that I was smoking pot, um, my parents knew what I was doing, but they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, my parents had, um, no experience with drugs themselves. Uh, both lived very clean lives. They had very little to no education about drugs or drug use. So when they found out that I was doing it, they literally didn't know what to do. 
And so what that looked like was mostly them just turning their heads, ignoring it, and just hoping that it would go away, um, which it didn't. Right. And uh, I remember one time my dad caught me smoking pot downstairs in my bedroom. I was probably 17, 18. Um, he kicked me out of the house for about a week. And I came back. Nothing was ever said. You know, he was really upset about it at first. My parents were upset. But in the long term, nothing was done about it. Mm -hmm. And my parents never did do anything about it because they just didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I look back on it now and I realize, wow, I wish my parents would have done something. I wish they would have forced me into counseling for taking me to get help. You know, uh, or something like that, because uh, mm -hmm. that's exactly what I needed at that time uh, in my life. What I really needed was a real counselor, a real mm -hmm. mentor that could spend time with me and help me get into what was really going on in my life. Right. You know, and help me find out that pain and work through it. Mm -hmm. And if that would have happened, it probably could have saved me a lot of years of drug abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, if I would have had the help that I needed at that time. Right. Just kind of some open, honest communication and. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's like a thing that kind of gets lost. Uh, like it seems, like you hear it, and it seems so simple. You know what I mean? Like oh, we just need to talk to each other. You know what I mean? Or like we just need to communicate. And like when you're dealing with people that like mean so much to you and like really like you care about, yeah, like those are difficult conversations to have. You know what I mean? Like oh yeah, nobody. I mean nobody wants their kids to use drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. For the most part, you know like. Nobody really wants those fates for their kids, you know? And, like, yeah. like you said, really like, don't. a lot of parents don't, just don't know what to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, and through no fault of their own, like you said, like, your parents live clean lives. That's, yeah. like, the goal. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Like, and they did it very well. And, like, but sometimes, like, so for if there are parents that really just don't know what to do, it starts with an open, honest conversation with your kids maybe about why. Yeah. Like why do you think? Do you think that would have helped if, they, if oh, someone would have came to you and said why? Yeah, absolutely, it would have helped because not only would it have helped, but it would have shown me that they cared. Mm -hmm. And I know that my parents loved me very right. much. I mean, parents love their children deeply. Mm -hmm. um, however, for children that are struggling in drug abuse or alcoholism, when they see their parents do nothing about it or like in my case, the parents don't know what to do, a lot of times that will come across as the child, to the child is, they don't care about me. Mm -hmm. They don't really, or they, they don't, care. don't care that I'm, I'm using. I'm, yeah. Or they don't care that I'm using. So it sends the message across where the child starts believing, I'm not valuable, I'm not important. My parents aren't doing anything, they don't care. When the truth is their parents really do care, but since they don't know what to do, they don't do anything. Mm -hmm. And that's the real problem. Whereas if parents, you know, today, any parents that are listening out there, if they, if they know or see or even suspect that their children are doing drugs and they don't know what to do about it, do something. Mm -hmm. Go get some help, like go get some education, talk to a counselor, be proactive, at least do something and let your children see it because that will at least show your child that you care. Mm -hmm. And that will let us send a message to the child, hey, my parent cares about this. My parent is actually doing something about it. And even if they don't do the right thing, at least the child knows I'm cared about. Mm -hmm. I'm loved. Right. And it's a big deal. And that doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be a common theme in your life, in your childhood, of really getting a message of being cared about. I mean, you said a lot of your 
I think you had said earlier that a lot of your memories were, you know, not being an inconvenience or uh, causing any sort of trouble. That's what it kind of sounds like. You were walking on eggshells because anything that you did that, that could potentially bother someone was seen as such a huge deal that when something big came up that would be like, it would take some work to get through, to talk, you know, about something like that. You find your child smoking marijuana and it is a big deal, but then it almost, it, it makes sense that they wouldn't want to kind of confront that because that seems to be the theme of just uh, put it away, don't, you know, just don't get in the way basically yeah. is like that's not how i see really instilling a feeling of value in a child is just stay out of the way you know more or less the less we see of you the better that's what it just seems like yeah. i mean maybe that wasn't their intention but you know my my dad definitely had enough for me to do i mean there was in fact one of the reasons why i kind of hid in my room or stayed away is because i knew if i was around he was going to put me to work and you know constantly oh. having me do stuff you know? oh, okay <laughs> so okay. Uh, not so, inconvenient <laughs> so that was that was one part of it right oh, um, yeah, 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 that makes sense you know and then and then the other part of it was um uh, you know my mom was just it was just a wonderful woman um but very soft-hearted and uh, my dad was very bold in his personality. So my mom got taken advantage of a lot. She kind of got walked on a lot. Her voice was never really heard, you know. And so as a child, you know, that need to, that feeling or that need to try to stand up for my mom was there. And then also, you know, that kind of that fear of my dad was there. And I was caught in the middle of that all the time. And, of course, I didn't know how to deal with that. And so... Mm -hmm. Just staying away the best I could was usually my answer um, and what I found was the least stressful for me and what kept me out of the trouble the most was, you know, either staying in the woods in my fort or staying in my room, you know, in my toys. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. As, is, as you progress, as you get older, uh, when you hit, like, 18, 19... Do you go out on your own at that point, or like, are you staying at home still, or kind of what happens? At that point, I'm trying to get out of the house as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But because I'm still living in the house as a teenager, um, you know, my mom is pretty loose on just letting me go and do what I want to do because mm -hmm. she understands my problems at home, right. and she understands that when I'm out there, you know, yeah, I'm doing drugs, but I'm a lot happier and I'm not getting in trouble all the time with my dad. Mm -hmm. Whereas my dad, you know, very into control, has to know where I'm going and what I'm doing at all times. And, of course, as a teenager, I don't know what I'm going to be doing 10 minutes from now, you know. So trying to mm -hmm. tell my dad where I'm going to be all the time didn't really work. So even as an older teenager, trying to get out of the house and being gone a lot was still problematic for me, mm -hmm. you know. But I did spend a lot of time out of the house, um, you know, once I got my own vehicle, I was gone as much as I could, you know, as much as I could be. Right. You know, just to not be at home. Mm hmm And so what's your, so as you're getting older, what's your use continue to look like? Is it still just kind of partying, smoking pot, or You know, or it, it, it continued to get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my drug of choice all the years of my addiction was marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, that was 95% of it. Um, but at, through the years, you know, as the marijuana just became normal and an everyday thing, other things, you know, took interest, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it was a, a friend that offered me something and I felt close with that friend or I felt safe with him. Mm -hmm. So I would try it, you know, right. and, uh, other drugs. Um, I did try other drugs, uh, experimented with them, but 
I'm very thankful that none of the harder drugs ever took hold of me. Right. Um, I never got addicted to any of the harder narcotics mm-hmm. like some of my peers did. Right. Um, now, I don't know why I never got addicted to those. I, I tried them. I did them. But uh, for the most part, I didn't like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't comfortable with the effects and how I felt. And uh, honestly, for the most part, I wasn't comfortable with the kind of people that were surrounded with those other drugs. You know, when I was doing marijuana, most of the people I got it from were pretty chilled, laid-back people. Mm-hmm. You know, when I went out a couple of times trying to buy cocaine and stuff like that, the people that were involved with that freaked me out. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to keep me away from those circles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm really thankful for that because a lot of my other friends that, you know, got into those circles, they lived much harder lives than I did. And uh, some of them are still there to this day. Some of them are gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I count myself lucky that marijuana was really the one thing that got me, and that was it. Right. You know. Yeah. So where does it start kind of breaking down for you, or can you look back and see kind of some of the signs that, that it was controlling your life? I mean, you could probably maintain some kind of like a... Uh, yeah, I think what he's trying to ask, like, at what point does it become not so functional anymore like yeah it's probably yeah, not yeah. sustainable so what what point does it start breaking down yeah that's a good question uh for me it was a long process um because i was able to hold down a job for a long time i was able to continue in my relationships go to church go to family functions and uh you know hockey games all this stuff and appear just fine um but as the years went by and my use of drugs um just kept going and increased, you know, daily. Um, I slowly began to become more unstable in my life. Where I I started, where I was once very punctual for work, I started showing up late. And where I was really good at uh, completing tasks, I would start coming up short, not completing as many tasks, or maybe not getting them all done. And then it started affecting my memory, and I started forgetting things. And, um, and slowly but surely, I just started becoming more lazy, more complacent, more forgetful, um, uh, what's the word, uh, less dependable. And th- then I found for the first time in my life, I got fired from a job. You know, I showed up too many days in a row late. Mm-hmm. I got fired. It had never happened to me before. So I started looking for another job, and it just got worse and worse from there until it finally got to the point to where I couldn't get a job, you know? Mm. Um, I wasn't dependable. I couldn't show up on time. I'd miss appointments, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'd forget everything. I'd have to walk back into the house three or four times to get my keys, and I'd leave again. Oh, I forgot my wallet. Walk back into the house again. And where my memory just started getting so clouded, and my whole social life, my motor skills, just my whole self-being it just became more and more corrupted Mm -hmm. as the drugs just took more control of my life and everything else in my life that was stable and solid it just slipped further and further away Mm -hmm. so what does your supports look like like friendships or or family members or as this is kind of slipping away and and things are kind of getting worse in this downhill slope of letting go basically of what values really you hold of being dependable of of completing tasks what does your relationships look like my relationships look 
like they are depleting more and more all the time because once I reached the point where I couldn't hide it anymore, it was, it was obvious, you know, I'd, I'd smell like it all the time. It was in my truck, like people, more and more people in my community, family, friends started to know, Hey, you know, Nathan's using drugs. He's a drug addict. This has been happening a long time. Word got out and people started knowing what was going on and people started, you know, for their own safety, started separating themselves from me more and more. But I also, on my part, I just stopped in my relationships. You know, my friends, I'd stop calling them. They, they didn't mean to, anything to me anymore. My family relationships didn't mean anything to me anymore. And my mind just got more wrapped around the drugs. And that's all I cared about was me and getting high in that world that I'd created. And so between my my own choice of separating myself and just walking away from relationships was the biggest part of it, but also other people choosing to separate themselves from me because they didn't want anything to do with that lifestyle or people that were doing it. And so that's where I eventually found myself with no friends and no relationships. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a kind of like an infection of apathy that slowly just kind of strangles all the things out of your life as you just slowly care less and less about the things around you and as you lose sight of those it becomes more and more your escapism becomes more and more what you want to come back to because there's less to see there's less things that are are really lighting up your life because you start taking them for granted you start taking your relationships for granted you start taking your job for granted and all these different things and then you're like well you know what i don't i don't really need that but Mm -hmm. then it's because you're high because you yeah. don't care. Right. Yep. And I, I think this is a really good one, too, because, like, a really good just podcast and general thing to talk about because there's this, like, especially as marijuana becomes more popular and obviously legalized as well, it, like, it kind of takes on this mantra of, like, oh, it's, like, the non-addictive alternative to everything, you know? When it's, when if you have enough that's really kind of buried down deep in there and it's kind of one of those things where you are like alcohol, using it a way to simply escape things. And, you know, because like we said before, there are some people, you know, it's legal, like, it's legal because it's been somewhat proven, air quotes, that, like, there are people that can use it responsibly, right? Like alcohol. Yeah, like alcohol, exactly like alcohol, you know what I mean? There are some people that can use it responsibly. But like alcohol, if there are some things that you're facing that you're not really wanting to talk about or are there are some things that are literally eating you inside or there are all these other things that are ongoing in your life that you're trying to escape and cover out of it can very much still become problematic you know i mean it's just like work it's just like alcohol it's just like all these other things that people find themselves doing where too often and find their relationships and their motivations and all these other things that they things that they used to love doing kind of just all fade away yeah because these escapes just become so much more dependent you know, like, they, <clears throat> your friends have choices. You know what I mean? If your friends don't want to hang out with you because you're high all the time, pot never chooses not to hang out with you. It's it going to be there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but at the same time, like, doesn't it's not a friend. <laughs> you know, it uh, doesn't do the same things for human no, beings. As, it's not. It's, yeah. it's very much an enemy in people's lives, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest problems with marijuana is with a lot of drugs is that they work so well. Mm-hmm. They uh, drugs do their job very well, and that job is numbing you out, mm-hmm. and and covering the pain. 
and it does it works very well just in a very illegitimate way mm -hmm. and so yes you're right there are some people that they can they can drink they can use marijuana and stuff like that and it seems like they can do it socially or recreationally and you know and and do just fine mm -hmm. um i would say that is a, a greatly small percentage of people who use um, the majority, the major majority of people who use, whether they choose to recognize it or not, or admit it or not, they are covering up some sort of pain. They are using it to escape from something in their life that is hurting them or challenging them or causing them pain in some way. I would say that. It kind of reminds me of, uh, there's this movie from back in like 2000 something is click it was with adam mm -hmm. sandler you know kind of silly right but thinking about that that's almost how it it seems it's like um it's like kind of just fast forwarding through everything like you you know you you want to skip the the crappy part of life or the pain or something so then you smoke and mm -hmm. then soon you're smoking all the time and you're missing all the good parts too because it's just yeah. it's all the same it's all just fast forward you know yeah, that's just how that's how I see. I was it interested anyways. to see where the click thing was going, but now yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. it is, dude. That's one hundred percent. And then if you're high all the time, you can't stop it. You know, mm -hmm. it just every experience is just one after the other, and it's gone. Yeah, yeah. It just all kind of blurs together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I'll go. I'm gonna backtrack just a little bit to that question we asked about uh, about parents mm -hmm. and what they can do with their kids. Um, you know, parents, a mom and a dad are such vital a vital part in a child's life that um a lot of times when children are growing up and have problems that they're hurt or they're sad it has to do with their parents and even kids that have good parents get hurt by their parents you know because nobody's perfect mm -hmm. and so for parents that are listening to this or you know want to know man what can i do with my child or they're going through this it, there's a very good possibility that maybe their child has something to do with them, with their parents. And a lot of children, even teenagers, they don't know how to express themselves really well because they haven't had the education yet. They don't have mm -hmm. the grid to really understand what's going on inside of them. And that's why a counselor or a mentor is so vital because they can help a child or a young person express what's going on and create a safe place where the child can actually do it. And a lot of times, a child just does not feel safe enough to tell their mom or their dad what's going on. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. they might feel, well, if I tell mom or dad the truth, I'm going to get in trouble. Absolutely. Or maybe I'll get kicked out of the house. Or, you know, or, or a list of other things mm -hmm. where maybe they want to tell their parents what's going on, but they just don't feel safe enough because they don't have that good of a relationship with their parents. So for parents... If they can humble themselves enough to say, okay, we know we're not perfect people. Maybe mm -hmm. we are good parents, but regardless, our child is struggling with something. Counseling is a great option. No matter where you're at in life or who you are, counselors are so important. They can help mm -hmm. you with all kinds of things. So getting a mentor or a counselor for your child, and, and it might take some time to find a counselor that your child feels safe with, you know, to stick with it. But if that child feels safe with a counselor and they stick with it and keep talking to them, they'll open up and that counselor will be able to help that child. And once the child starts talking and speaking the truth and actually saying what's going on, they can get help. And right then and there is the opportunity to 
go around problems or just completely avoid problems that would come in life that could cause huge, you know, huge problems or really change somebody's life forever, you know, whereas mm -hmm. they got that help, they got that counseling that they needed, they were able to talk, they were able to get honest and get help for it. And that road that I went down and so many of us did of drug addiction and everything could very well be eliminated. It could mm -hmm. very well be avoided. And I know that that is true, actually. I know because from experience, when I was about 13 years old, I was really struggling, like, you know, just typical stuff that teenagers grapple with. You know, I really didn't like myself as a person, and, and I was really struggling with that because I just wanted to be so much better. And anyways, my parents realized that they weren't able to communicate with me in a way that I could understand without me being afraid of getting in trouble. So... What they said is, hey, you should ask, uh, it was my pastor at the time, hey, you should just go out for lunch with him. Just hang out with him, ask him some questions, see what happens. I was like, okay. So I went out, and it turned into, like, a weekly thing. And I just talked to him about, like, he was super cool. Like, the first time we hung out, we built a potato cannon. So if that mm -hmm. doesn't tell you that that was just a super cool, awesome <laughs> <Right>. relationship. <laughs> what 13-year-old doesn't uh, want to shoot potatoes oh, through plywood? Totally. Yeah, it's <laughs> literally the best thing ever. But... He, he helped mentor me, and he was a very trusted adult in my life uh, for up until, like, 18. Uh, and he really, I think that helped my high school life just be basically a lot better quality than a lot of other people's because I had someone I could talk to that wasn't my parents, that I wasn't scared of, of getting in trouble for. And he could really, he could offer some guidance from his experience in a way that I could understand. And I didn't just immediately dismiss it like, oh, you know, whatever, my parents, you know, they don't know anything. I was like, okay, maybe this guy has a point because I trusted him. You know, we had, we had talked so much. So I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. I mean, I, I experienced it on the other side and I'd say that that is, that is huge that having a trusted adult mentor in your life as a, as a teenager or as a child struggling at all is super beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. And the other thing is when, when that child or even an adult, when they finally do find that safe place where they're able to open up and start talking about their problems, there's a lot of stuff that manifests with that because when stuff that's been buried down deep inside of you for a long time, it finally starts coming out. A lot of times people don't know how to act with themselves when they do that. And stuff starts coming out from the first time they start thinking it, it gets real. They're talking about it. A lot of times, a lot of anger will come with that. A lot of confusion will come with that acting out or maybe reverting back to your old behaviors because it's psychological too. And a lot of times when you start getting into that stuff, you don't know how to behave and it freaks you out. You know, memories start coming back that you haven't thought of before. And, um, and you need to be able to be in contact with people who are mature enough and safe enough to handle that and can help you through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when I first started getting sober, um, reality freaked me out. Because I had been under the influence of drugs for so many years that a lot of my mentality and my mind had completely forgotten what, so, what sobriety was like. So when I started getting sober and I started literally being able to smell again, taste food the real way again, my thoughts started coming back to me and a lot of the things that were numbed out and dormant 
started clicking back on, it was a very scary process for me. Mm-hmm. It was really scary. And that's why I relapsed a couple of times because just basic reality was more than I could handle. Mm-hmm. And I needed to go back to what was normal and what felt safe, which was right. the drugs. Mm. And thankfully, I had people in my life that were able to absorb that and continue on with me. And they loved me through it. And I kept going. Mm -hmm. And slowly, I got my feet under me. And I stayed in reality long enough that I was okay. Right. Kind of like adjusting your eyes to the light. Exactly. Like when you're... When you're like inside, you know, for like the majority of the morning and like you don't really, get, then you go outside for the first time and the light hits you and it's just like this blinding, just white hot ball. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, and it actually hurts. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like looking at a computer screen in the morning. You wake mm-hmm. up and your phone rings. It's been dark in your room. And you look at your computer screen. And you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. it'll hurt your eyes. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like if you took Advil every day. You, would, you wouldn't notice, like, the little things that kind of bothered you, you know, theoretically. But then once you stop taking it, something that would just be uncomfortable would be painful. Mm-hmm. It's like the same kind of like, oh, you bump your arm or something? Oh, whatever. But then if you haven't experienced pain in a year and a half or whatever, uh, then all of a sudden that, that hurts. And I think that's, that's kind of how it is with emotional experiences in yeah. marijuana is that... After being numb so long, basic reality is kind of, like you said, it's a shock. It's, it is a shock. So if something bad does happen, it's exceptionally painful because it it's been so long. Yeah. So that makes sense why the difficulty with relapse is because, mm-hmm. I mean, if once you've been numb for that long, once real pain comes along, it really kicks you. <laughs> yeah. right. Yep, and it's a really big deal, and it's very real. What? what I mean, know. not like there's a, if there's, there might not be like a specific time or moment, and there might be. Is there like a specific moment where like you do experience sober pain for the first time in a long time mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like, wow, you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Oh, I, I know exactly what you're trying to say. And, um, and it can be really hard to deal with because real feelings, like, like our body has the capability to feel and express very powerful things. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the chemistry within us, the, the, all the chemicals that our brains can, can make and mix and come up with that cause like adrenaline, happiness, joy, you know, mm-hmm. pain, you know, sorrow. Um, when those things are uninhibited by drugs or other substances, when they are healthy within us and, and sober, they're very powerful. Mm-hmm. And they're very moving. So when somebody is very used to being numbed out, say, maybe not even with substances, but just maybe depression, mm-hmm. you know, stuff, and they start coming back into their real self and their real sober, healthy self, feelings of sadness or feelings of joy, you know, they can really be very powerful to a person. Mm-hmm. And um, and I have been, I've been triggered to go back to drugs for good things as well as bad things. You know, it's not just bad things that trigger a person. I mean, I remember a few instances where um, I felt really happy because of a date that I went out on with a really pretty girl Mm -hmm. or a job interview that I got that, wow, this is going to be a cool job. And I was really excited and I was feeling real joy and that was healthy. But it was such a powerful emotion in me that it actually triggered me to go back right. to drugs mm-hmm. because oh, I'm I like, what celebrate. am I feeling here? Yeah. You know? And it was just like, and that wasn't normal mm-hmm. to feel something that strong. 
right. and the pull to go back to drugs and numb out again. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, mm -hmm. I'm actually thinking about relapsing because I'm so happy right now. <laughs> what is this? What's going on? <laughs> right. You know, and yeah. it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there is something to be said for just the ability to feel in general. You know what I mean? Like, that's something that, like, we often overlook as people, you know, because we get so caught up in, like, just the day-to-day, -day, like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that, you know, there's always things to do and things to be done, but, like, just taking that, like, step back and, like, that deep breath and, like, really letting yourself, like, feel even joy, you know what I mean? Because, like, I feel like when we get, when obviously when bad things happen, like you said, like, it's easy to feel sad, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, those, like, for some reason, those emotions, like, really set in a lot harder than, like, the positive ones maybe I'm projecting but I mean like no I understand you know what I mean yeah. like it's easy to be really disappointed or really sad about something you know what I mean but yeah. then like, when good things happen like there's this weird like maybe it's even a social thing the more I think about it but it's like we're not supposed to be as excited about when things go right for us you know what I mean because we're arrogant or we're this yeah, or dude, that dude I totally you know I mean? understand that yeah <laughs> yeah no but dude like when good things relate. happen to me and I do good things you applaud for me yeah, I'm well, gonna for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Like we're almost not allowed to be as excited as we should get to be about when things like yeah, good things happen. Because everyone else is suffering, so yeah. we don't want to interrupt <laughs> their suffering with our good time. Right. I'm sorry, I'm having a good life in front of your pain. Yeah. Like, yeah. dude. <laughs> right, and like, right. And dude, and that's the what? other thing too is like, it's these weird social things, you know, and it's the old like, life is suffering. Well, it doesn't have to be, at least not all the time. You know what I mean? Like, and it's not really what we have to focus on all the time. Yeah, life is hard. Yeah. It's going to be hard. We know that. We can accept that. But does it have to be, like, so increasingly painful and sorrowful all the time? Like, no, it doesn't. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah. Like, we should be allowed to be happy. And we are, we and we need to be. Yeah. You know, I remember a counselor having this exact conversation with me, and basically the gist of it was, you know, you're good at beating yourself up. Everybody does that, and that's acceptable. But why do you think it's not okay to celebrate yourself? Mm -hmm. You know, why, why does that not feel good? And that was my exact homework was, Nathan, you've, you've taken these steps. You've gotten this many of years sobriety in your life. You need to celebrate that. Mm -hmm. Like, you need to get some friends together, have a barbecue, have a bonfire. You, like, need to celebrate this victory in your life. And I'll tell you what, it was really hard to do that for myself. Mm -hmm. I really struggled with, do I deserve this? And right. is this okay to actually celebrate myself? Am I being prideful or arrogant here? Mm -hmm. And I really struggled with all of these thoughts until I realized, okay, it doesn't matter what I think. I just need to do what my counselor says. <laughs> right. Good, you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. And so I got some friends together. We had a barbecue, we barbecued some chicken and stuff <laughs> right. like that, had a fire. And um, I said a little bit at the at the party that night. I was like, you know, guys, here, this is what I'm doing. I got X number of years sober and just celebrating tonight. And, and uh, you know, the friends, they were happy and everything. And it was really cool. But um, it was I felt really self-conscious about it, you know, mm -hmm. felt really, you know, in the light on the whole thing. And right. uh, and it was really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But it was a really good and healthy thing to do, but it didn't feel that comfortable right. to me, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but it was, that was a really good homework, you know, for mm -hmm. me to do. And it really, 
taught me a lot about the importance of valuing myself mm -hmm. and how important it is to value ourselves purposely, yeah. to be outgoing about it, to do things that mm -hmm. value ourselves and to do things that show ourselves value and that we're worth it. But that's not something that is really normal that people do. Right. Especially you know? when it's something like that's kind of expected as average. Like you don't celebrate when you clean your room. You know, no one's gonna throw right. you a party yeah. for I've cleaned my room for a year. And and to some people I think that's how they see an addiction is almost like, oh, I'm just not meeting the standard. Why would I celebrate right. over you know, doing this when it just feels like I should have already been doing this. Yeah, dude, that was like, it reminds me of Zach's <laughs> podcast, dude. Uh, so we did a podcast, a guy named Zach, and he tells this story that's like, you know, pretty powerful, especially if you have experience, like if you're listening in addiction, you know, he goes, I went to the store and I was buying, you know, lunch and stuff. And I had a thing of chicken, you know, and I go through and the lady doesn't scan my chicken. And he talks about this internal battle that he has inside of him, you know, where he's like, I need to tell her that she didn't ring up my chicken. Right. And he's like, oh, I don't want to. But I need to tell her that she didn't ring up my <laughs> so chicken. And I'm, like, her. <laughs> and I'm like, ma'am, you didn't ring up my chicken. And then I walked out and I was like, can someone, like, clap for me? I didn't even steal today. Right? <laughs> and then, like, Eric brought that up too. Yeah. He's like, you know, it's, it is. It's all relative. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Honestly, like, yeah, something like at least yeah. like, your the ability to clap for yourself no, in those that scenarios is, is excellent huge, point, dude. Yeah, it that is, is an excellent example of the need for affirmation right mm -hmm. there, and we all need it. Like, right. we all need to be affirmed that we've done a good job. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like I'll tell you, like, you get a pat on the back, you get an attaboy, you know, for something mm -hmm. you did good, that will change your whole day. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it frustrates me. I'm like, why am I so needy of other people's? Like, should I be sure of myself and not need it? But no, that's just regular human life. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. just an accepted. We need part. It. Yeah. You know, as individualized it's as we think we are, like we're very, we're very social beings. Maybe you that's know? the Alaskan in me. You know, I'm yeah, just like, yeah, you know, yeah. self-sustaining. <laughs> I don't need nobody tell me good job. I'll <laughs> yeah. pat myself on the back, <laughs> yeah. but then I don't. So you know, that doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's good uh, right there. And you know, and if. You know, if a lot of these young people, you know, and for the parents listening, um, you know, I remember my dad kind of had the mentality of like, why should I tell my son he did a good job for just doing what he's supposed to do? Right. Yeah. right? If he's yeah. just doing what he's supposed to and what I told him, that's just what I told him to do. Why should I tell him good job for that? And if he goes above and beyond, then maybe he'll, you know, throw me a bone or something. But the thing is, like, you can never go wrong for instilling value in your kids. Mm -hmm. And if your kids are doing what they're supposed to do, if they're listening to you or that you tell them to do something and they do it, absolutely. Like, tell them, hey, good job. Thank you for doing that. You know, I'm proud of you for doing that. Like, any time a parent can instill value and self-worth in their children, that right there is going to go so much further in their life than those parents know. Like, that right there... On the other side, years down the road, when that child, children grow, the child grows up, just that affirmation, those words of affirmation right there, very well will probably cause your children to make better choices in their life. Oh, yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. So I just had a question. Uh, what is it like now with, you know, marijuana being legalized? Is that more of a, a difficult, is that more difficult for you because it's kind of everywhere now? I imagine that's kind of a similar problem that people who struggle with alcoholism face, kind of being everywhere. 
-hmm. Oh yeah, sure. Um, that's such a good question because marijuana being my drug of choice through all the years of my addiction, um, it was always easy to get, but now that it's legalized and you can just literally walk into a store and buy it, um, it, it does, it does rub on the temptation a little bit, you know, um, and it does play in the back of my mind a little bit of, hey, this is, it's all right, it's legal, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to go get high, you know, get some, it's totally okay now, you know, and so there's that thinking in the back of my mind that I can hear, but, um, but at the same time, it's, um, how do I say this, it hasn't been that big of a, um, of a stumbling block to me, the legalization of it, because I've got enough years of sobriety in my life now, like I've built up enough momentum and enough of a support group, um, and I've gotten healthy enough in myself that um, that it just doesn't have the same effect on me anymore. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I can drive, I can drive by the stores, I can see the ads and everything, and. It, it kind of just takes the same effect as it did years ago when it was when it was illegal. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the same thing, right. even though it's more in your face now. Yeah. It's just it's become such an unattractive thing to me mm -hmm. um, that I just um, that it just really doesn't bother me much. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of makes sense with the way you were talking about earlier that because <laughs> um, that because it was something that you did for yourself that it was the legalization really wasn't the issue because maybe if you had based it on something outside of yourself, they said, okay, I'm going to quit marijuana because it's illegal. And so therefore it's morally wrong or however you saw it. If that hadn't been a real decision with you, it, you probably would have struggled with it a lot more yeah. because you're like, is this wrong? Is it's not illegal? Yeah. Is it morally wrong? I don't know. Yeah. And then I think you involve a lot more. I think struggle. that's an interesting dynamic yeah. we're going to run into with the generation that has it legalized. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the same thing like with alcohol when they, you know, first made it legal. Like the yeah. original drinking age for alcohol was 18. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then they're like, oh, because we think the brain's done developing right. via Freud at 14 or 15. You know what I mean? <laughs> or we think the brain's done developing now at about 20. Mm -hmm. So 18's good. Well, actually, now we think it's 21. And now, actually, we think it's like 25. And I think now it's like 28. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps like getting. Uh, but you know what I mean? So, like, I think. And the, I don't know if those generations necessarily even struggle more or less. I think, like, the fact that it's socially acceptable. You know, we run into this all the time with all sorts of things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Things that are legal, but, like, depending on your in, inter- and intrapersonal relationships and thoughts and values and whatever, or not whatever, and other things, but mm -hmm. you still, like, get to make that choice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's And there may be some peer pressure that makes it difficult, you know, and there are some other things, you know, like um, there are some complexities that I'm like not trying to completely overlook, but like mm -hmm. on a basic level, on a foundational fundamental level, like, because I mean, I think about the same things, you know what I mean? Like, just because it's legal doesn't mean I have to do it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. right. You know, or like, doesn't mean that like, it doesn't, indulge, it doesn't mean indulgence is healthy. Yeah. It doesn't right. mean I need it or it that just, it's a good thing for me. It just means that the government's like, I guess people can do this if yeah. they want to. I mean, they're just like, yeah, do your thing, man. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Doesn't mean, it also means I can do my thing. So. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it does create an interesting dynamic though. Like, especially cause marijuana still like feeling like it kind of feels still a little bit taboo in circles, you know what I mean? Even though it is yeah. legalized now, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and from the fact that it's only legal in, what, like, four or five states? Yeah. So, like, the majority of people still kind of see it in this different way than we do. You know what I mean? Right, right. And, but still, I think, like you said, like, the problem doesn't stem from necessarily legalization. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because it's like alcohol, like, some people can use it responsibly. You know Dude, what it's I mean? even like food. I mean, yeah. like, for real, just anything yeah. in life, you could say that, oh, I can overindulge in this because it's not wrong to have it. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, overindulgence is the problem. Right. But yeah. I think, like, like you were saying, that if unless you take a look at yourself and realize the truth of, is this something you really want to do? Because mm-hmm. you yeah. obviously really want to do it now. Yeah. And if you deny that, then you don't even get anywhere. Yeah. So is this something that you want to continue right. doing yeah. and kind of overindulging in? And unless mm. you come face to face with this is too far, yeah. like what's going to stop you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it does. It requires a lot of reflection. Like, on, honest self-reflection. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. I heard a good question one time um, that that was come back with even a better answer. The question in the topic was, what's the most dangerous drug in the world? And, um, and the man that answered, it was such a profound answer. And his answer was, the most dangerous drug in the world is whatever it is that hooks you. Mm-hmm. And he said, for me, the most dangerous drug in the world was not meth or heroin or anything. It, to me, it was alcohol. And he said, some people, the most dangerous drug in the world might be food. Right. Or it might be pornography because like for me, I, you know, I did a lot of drugs, but I was never hooked on crack. I never Mm -hmm. did. I never got hooked on the meth or anything else. And I know how dangerously addictive those drugs are. Mm -hmm. Some people can do them and they're hooked one time. Um, For me, those weren't dangerous drugs to me at all. Because they didn't hook me. I didn't mm-hmm. care. I didn't. The, the very few times that I even tried them, I didn't even like them. Mm-hmm. Right. But marijuana, to me, was literally the most dangerous drug in the world because it destroyed my life. Right. Yeah. You know? Because it, you, you ultimately cool gave it to power yeah. to. Yeah. Oh, nothing. I just say, because everyone obviously has, like, their just different preferences, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, unique preferences. And it's everything, you know, like you said, from food to drugs, you know, yeah. whatever it may be, mm-hmm. like... We've heard that quite a bit, too, where, like, oh, you know, I tried one thing, and, like, you know, I liked it, and it was, like, I kind of got started there, and then and then I tried this, and, like, it was one of those things, like, the second I tried it, I knew, like, it was downhill from here. Like, oh, yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Like, I've tried, I've tried meth, and, you know, and, like, it was, it was fine, you know, like, it was okay, but mm-hmm. then I tried whatever, and it was... Yeah. I knew it right there that I was right. like, yeah. So I think that's, I think the relativity is a really good point. I think that re- that reminds me as well of uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a recording where they, they were initially having fun, but mm-hmm. then gradually more and more the drug became them and right. they were kind of emptied out and hollowed out and just became like a vessel for this. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think that's kind of what addiction becomes is that your life slowly becomes less and less of you and what your focus is and more and more of of how am I going to fit this into my life mm-hmm. yeah. and and I think that's a that's a it's a dangerous path to go down but with some self-reflection uh it is possible to and and support as yeah, well I mean I think it's even more helpful if you can have that honest mm-hmm. conversation with someone I mean that's yeah. probably even way harder to not right. just be reflecting on yourself but other people and I think there are other like the cool like the big thing about having support and being able to ask those questions to other people 
is the fact that they're not you. You know what I yeah. mean? They just have yeah. a totally different perspective. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can kind of poke you and prod you with some of these questions that you might not even think to ask yourself. You right. Know oh, I mean? yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, like, that kind of extra spur kind of helps you get yeah. galloping a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Course references. <laughs> no, it's interesting. The, the people The people in your life that it requires to get sober when you're in the midst of your drug addiction, you're kind of at that point, the people you need are the people that you don't want to be around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, um, I couldn't stand being around Christian people. They were so incredibly boring. And I just looked at their lives and they're just like, these people are boring. They're religious. They're, they're dry. They're, you know, and, um, but they were exactly the people that I needed. And I had to admit to myself, okay, Um, these people aren't going to jail all the time. They're not getting arrested. They're not doing drugs. Um, they have nice houses. They have jobs. Like (laughs) they have secure, successful lives. So regardless of what I think of them, I realize there's a lot that I can learn from them. And these people aren't addicted. Mm -hmm. Like they're actually living good lives. And so, um, I realized I need to stick close to these people. If I'm going to get free from the drugs, I need to learn how to do what they're doing. And that was, that was the biggest thing for me. It didn't matter what I thought of the people or how I felt about them. Um, I had to stick close to them, and I had to have them in my life. Yeah. And the more I kept them close and the more I emulated them and did what they did, you know, it helped. And it helped mm-hmm. get me sober. You know? And it was their friendship in my life that really did it for me. Yeah. You know? I think you can find that support here at Serenity House as well. Uh, yeah. Not only people who who have these successful lives, but who have been in addiction, who have struggled mm-hmm. with it and come out and, and now are on the other side. And they can really help our listeners kind of figure out how to navigate life. I feel like it took me a long time to realize how big of a part my dad played in not only the good things in my life, but also the hard years of my life, my drug addiction and all of that. And um, he played a very big part in it. And so talking about him is, uh, is, is kind of a slippery thing because um, I really love both my parents. Um, you know, and in some ways, you know, my dad is very important to me in my life. I really love him. So I don't want to say anything that's going to disrespect him or dishonor him. Um, but in order to tell the truth of my life, I have to involve him in it because he's a real, very real part of my story. And um, so it is, I don't want to come across to, that in any way that I'm blaming my dad for my choices in drug abuse mm-hmm. um, because it's not his fault. Um, it, it's absolutely my fault. They were my choices. However, um, how do I say this? Uh, his choices in his life the way he treated my mom, my sister, and I um, was very real, um, definitely inspired me to go the direction I did. When I started choosing to do drugs, um, his influence in my life and his choices in my life were a very real backer behind that. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a, a really thin line between it wasn't his fault but yet a lot of the reasons why I chose to do drugs were very much because of him. And does that make sense? Yeah, it's like he didn't cause you to turn to drugs. However, he did cause you some turmoil in your life 
that you escaped two drugs because right. you know because you had so much turmoil and you chose right. what to do with that turmoil you chose what to do with those feelings and those struggles however he was a part of those struggles yeah but he wasn't a part of the the decision for you what you're going to do with that but you exactly. didn't you didn't really have the the coping skills or i don't think maybe you'd learn coping skills that would have helped you to deal with that so yeah. it, it's definitely a part of it it is it's a big part of it and you know and you know, how is a young boy or even a teenager supposed to stand up to a grown man? You know, mm -hmm. a, a grown man is very intimidating. I mean, even as men now, men can still be intimidating to us, you know, mm -hmm. um, in, in conflict. But, uh, you know, as a young boy and as a teenager, I wasn't able to stand up to my dad. Um, I didn't know how to. And um, when I was angry, when I was confused, when I was frustrated with him, um, rebelling against his rules was really the only way I knew how to, to stand up for myself or to speak out. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so when I did start smoking pot, the way that it affected me um, and how it allowed me to escape from all of that um, was so strong that that's, you know, that's what I chose to do. And it was, it was definitely defiance against him. It was mm -hmm. definitely rebellion against him. Mm -hmm. um, and because that was these, at that time, the only way I knew how to take care of my anger, you know, and, um, and my dad couldn't, he couldn't handle it anyway. He bringing anger or anything deep or emotional to my dad was not something that he could do. And so, um, I remember one particular night I was really hurting. I remember I was even crying. Um, you know, I was probably 16, 17. I was so stressed out in life, and I didn't even know what all was going on. I was just deeply um, emotional and really full of sadness and anger. And I tried talking to my dad, and I remember my dad um, literally laughing at me and shooing me away and saying, you know, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to deal with that. Get out of here. Go away. And literally laughing at me. Um, and I look back on it now, and I think my dad literally didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I think my dad was probably really nervous um, mm -hmm. because his own emotions were something that he couldn't face and look at. Yeah. So when I came to him, his own son, um, I think it probably freaked him out. Mm -hmm. um, and really here, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. But uh, for what that did for me, that really kind of put the last nail in the coffin with my relationship with my dad. And after mm -hmm. that, I realized... This is a person who provides very well for me, mm -hmm. but they absolutely do not care for me whatsoever. And uh, from there, I think my, my dive into drug addiction was pretty secured mm -hmm. from that point on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as you're, you're in your addiction, some things have been going poorly. You'd uh, lost your job and, you know, having some struggles in there is there uh is there a point where maybe you're getting some hints that this is because of your addiction like i know some people don't really realize this is what's causing the problems in my life but do you know a part in your life where you start to understand that there are some problems that i have that maybe i can do something about maybe i can change yeah, that's something. a good question you know for a lot of years as a teenager um I really didn't know there was anything wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't, I very much did not realize that I had some really deep emotional issues going on. Um, I don't even think it was on the back burner. Um, I, 
I was angry and I, I was deeply disturbed and I did have a lot, a lot of issues going on that were really hurtful. Um, but until I was probably in my early twenties, I really didn't get it. And I really didn't know it. I just thought smoking pot was something that I just loved doing. And I did love it. It was like my favorite thing. Um, but until I was probably in my early 20s, I'd say 22, 23, um, and those problems started manifesting into other problems, um, I, that's when I started taking a look and realizing, I know that this isn't the way I should be living. I, you know, I know I should be living better than this. So why, why am I not? What's mm-hmm. going on that I'm choosing to live this way? Right. So, um, so it was in my early twenties when I started realizing, um, there were things that were going wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you don't actually start, we well, talked about earlier, you don't actually admit to yourself that you may have an addiction until you're in, close to your thirties, right? Yeah. So I'm assuming there's some things you you ask yourself, you know, why aren't I living better? I'm assuming there's probably some things that you kind of start putting this on before addiction in somewhere from 23 to 29. Does that make sense? So, yeah. like, you're like, oh, things are going wrong in my life, but it's this, not the drugs. It's this. Oh, right? absolutely. So what are some of those other things that you kind of put in front of that before you really came to realize that it was your addiction? Um... I blamed my dad a lot, uh, for a lot of things, but also, um, it was just utter denial. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I was really good at denying, um, denial is a powerful thing. It, uh, you can really block a lot out, a lot of reality out through denial. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, say from my teenage years to probably, you know, 2930, when I finally got real with reality, um, I just wasn't ready to face it. Mm -hmm. And I think I was probably too scared to, or maybe too scared to, or just didn't know how to. And so denial, denial was it. I just denied. I don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. I'm good here. You know, I'm happy. I got a great life. I'm having fun. Mm -hmm. And it was all lies. I I wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but that denial worked. It's like convincing yourself that this is all you need sort of thing. Right. You're like, oh, no, no, no. I can just be satisfied with very little mm-hmm. and actually not much at all. But that's right. fine. It's fine. I just don't need a lot. It's like, yeah, you do. You just you just don't want to believe that there's something better out there than smoking weed and hanging out. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I feel that on a very <laughs> spiritual level. Yeah, I'm, I'm just yeah. projecting yeah. here, honestly. Well, but yeah, it's working. <laughs> dude, it's one of those things where, like, there's just so many ways to justify anything <laughs> ever in the world like because you just got to convince you yeah <laughs> so that's dude, so relative like, yeah and it's like <laughs> for me dude it was like and i'm not even gonna pretend to project i'm just gonna say for me yeah because <laughs> it was enough. one of those things where it was like oh you know if somebody asks you know like why are you drinking on a tuesday first of all i'm brash enough to say because it's tuesday dummy that's why <laughs> right and then also, you know, I'm 22, I'm having fun, it's mm-hmm. for the experience. Yeah. Hashtag millennial. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like, oh, I'm just out here having as many experiences as I can, you know, having fun while I'm young, you know, because I'm yeah. going to die one day. You know, like... And every, that's what all the old people are saying. Yeah, I had, I was such a crazy partier. Those were the best years of my life when I was young. I'm like, yeah. oh, shoot, these aren't the best years of my life. I must not be right. partying um, enough. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah seriously. <laughs> like, I'm it's, like, it's going downhill from here. Yeah. Uh, like, I pissed 
myself last night. That wasn't fun. What do you mean? The most fun years of my life. <laughs> like, come on. Over but, time, the bad memories just kind of fade away, perhaps. Yeah, dude. And I'm like, but I, I, I get it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like a lot of people who kind of struggle with this stuff, you know what I mean? It makes sense. Yeah. Like, we can rationalize things any which way we want, you know? Yeah. Like, it's mm-hmm. for the experience, or like, it's because I'm 21, 22. It's what you're supposed right. to do when you're 21, you know? Like, I'm supposed to be partying and having fun doing this stuff. So, like, when does that feeling kind of run out for you? Mm, probably. Yeah, probably my, probably my late 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, it just... I knew that it wasn't fun anymore. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wasn't getting the same thing out of it as I did in my teenage years, in my early twenties. Um, but still, there was that part of me that didn't know what else to do, mm-hmm. and wasn't ready for the truth yet. Right. And so I'd kept partying, kept trying to, you know, grab that excitement or that high out of it, and and it just wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's when. That's when I definitely started coming face to face with, um, I mean, like reality was knocking on my door and I was trying to, to look away as much as I could, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, and that denial, you know, where that comes from, I wonder where it came from in my life, but, you know, growing up in, in a Christian home and going to church every Sunday and being in Christian circles, um, I couldn't be honest. I was too scared to be honest and, um, you know, scared of getting in trouble and all of this and, uh, um, scared of being, uh, you know, shamed by, you know, my youth pastor or people Mm -hmm. in church or my family. And so, um, between being scared to be honest, um, and not wanting to be honest, hiding, um, you know, you learn how to lie really well. Right. And after a while, learning how to lie to other people, you can start lying to yourself, too. Mm-hmm. You know, and that denial is born, and um, and it just grows from there. Mm-hmm. Plus, I think if you get so used to lying to people, and you don't have, like, one person in your life who at least knows you fully, that you start believing that you're an unacceptable person. Because you're unable to share that with anyone. So... There, I think there's a real chance that you'll you'll start believing that uh, if people really knew you, if there was something that you didn't have to lie to, then you'd just be rejected. So I think that can really build up some internal angst, some internal pain of feeling like no one really knows me, no one would really like me if they knew me completely, because all they know is the lies that I've given them. Mm-hmm. So I think that can cause a lot of internal strife that can fuel, again, the escapism of just like... No one knows me, and you know what? I don't need anybody. I'm just going to smoke a joint and, you know, zone right. out, whatever. And honestly, I think a lot of that comes back to that um, that negative self-image, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, when you think about, like, nobody knows me, well, it's because I've purposely painted this picture mm-hmm. that I want people to see, because if they knew me, I don't like me, mm-hmm. so how could they like me? Right. You know what I mean? I know mean I don't like me. Yeah. Yeah, Dude, that that makes sense. I just like, I feel like it comes from this place, even almost honestly, sometimes subconsciously where you're like, Hmm. you don't feel like people are going to like you. And so you never really give them the full you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because, I mean, I think everyone's a little bit self-conscious, but I think Mm -hmm. people that do struggle with kind of like depression and anxiety kind of 
really get that tightness in their chest when it comes to kind of actually being able to express themselves and like really like giving somebody their full person, you know? Yeah. There's, if you don't like you, like it doesn't like it doesn't jive to like really think that anyone else is gonna like you either. You yeah. Know what I mean, like I am me and I don't <laughs> like me. You know what I mean? Like I don't think you present yourself as a likable person either. Like yeah. if you don't like yourself, then like you're not you're not gonna be. I don't know. I, I guess part of it is is kind of counterintuitive, but the most genuine people that I've met, the people that you know are just really unafraid of being themselves, are some of the most fun people to be around because mm-hmm. they're so comfortable with themselves. Right. I think that's refreshing, dude. That is one of the things too that like I like I absolutely love in people because it is so hard to do. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that's scary. In a lot of ways, dude. Yeah, to really put yourself out there and just be kind of raw about who you are, dude. Just like be a little quirky, good, bad, a little weird. Other. Yeah, you yeah. Know but what that's mean? being okay with that. Yeah, and I, you, dude, and those people are like refreshing. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, you like, wish you fun. were more like them because you're <laughs> oh, like, yeah. I wish I could just be a little out there and mm-hmm. wasn't afraid of how people would see me, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. It's true, but. Yeah. If you want the kind of friends that you want, really want to have, mm-hmm. you have to be that person. Right. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Real friends. Yeah. And and that opens you up to a lot of ridicule. It opens you up to the people that you kind of don't want to be mm-hmm. around, you know, when you just wear your heart on your sleeve and you're real and you're authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you take a lot of, you know, you take a lot of heart feelings living <laughs> like that. Yeah. But at the same time... Um, the friends that you do gain, the people that see that in you, that like you, that want to be a part of that and want mm-hmm. to be around you, is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because if you if you create, if you're willing to be polarized, if you're willing to to be all about something, there's someone's not gonna like you. Right. But if you always ride that middle ground of always kind of playing it safe, then yeah, there's probably no one who's gonna hate you. But no one's really gonna like you either, because <laughs> all they get is this kind of washed out image of who you are, because it's more acceptable. So yeah. then you don't make any enemies, but like you said, you don't enjoy those real friendships that you yeah. get with that. Yeah. I remember used to be, I used to be a people pleaser a lot. Mm-hmm. Drugs do that to you, you know, um, trying to please everybody, say the right thing, do the right thing. And, um, and I came to realize um, it's such a lost cause because it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe in there's always going to be people that stand against you and there's always going to be people that stand for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, take any iconic figure in history, however evil where they were or however righteous they've been, they have people on both sides of the fence that support them and, you know, stand against them. And so I realized I might as well just be myself then. And I <laughs> yeah. might as well be my authentic right. self <laughs> because there's people going to like yeah. me and not like me anyway. Yeah. So I got nothing. I got more... I got more to lose trying to be a people pleaser than I do just letting go and just being myself. Right. Yeah. And then you don't have to worry about fitting in with the kind of person that you want to be because yeah. you don't have to fit in with that person because you're already you. Like, that doesn't take more effort, but I think there's a real pull in that in, mm-hmm. in just in life to, to kind of, I don't know, sell yourself short of right. the full experience of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how has your recovery helped you do that and become – First of all, become okay with being your full self just in your room. You know what I mean? And then being okay doing it in front of other people. How has recovery kind of initiated or just kind of affected that process in general? Well, um, it's it's affected all of it. It's I'm not sure 
what rehab looks like and how a lot of people's recovery has gone. I, I've never been to rehab before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't do recovery in Alaska. Um, I couldn't do it here. I tried and I, I just couldn't do it. I had to leave Alaska physically and get out to, in order to get recovery. I had to have a whole new group of people, a whole new setting. I literally had to start over again. And um, I got involved with a men's group through Bethel Church in Redding, California called Man Alive. And that men's group forced me to look at myself. Mm-hmm. It forced me to come face to face with who I really am and um, and look at my and look at my choices, look at myself. And that is one of the hardest things we will ever do mm-hmm. is look in the mirror and look at ourselves and take an <coughs> honest account of ourselves. Yeah. And uh, for five years, I stayed in that men's group faithfully mm-hmm. and I just kept working on myself and I kept showing up every Monday night um, talking about myself, admitting my choices, admitting, you know, my wrongs and, um, and having my group leaders, you know, ask me very challenging and real questions that I had to answer. Um, I remember one of the most challenging questions one of my group leaders ever asked me. Um, he looked me right in the eye one Monday night and he said, Nathan, who taught you that it's not okay to fail? And it hit me really hard, and uh, it almost it, it almost brought tears to my eyes because so many years of my life, I had been taught that I had to be a certain way. I grew up under a bar of perfection in my home where I could never be good enough, and I was always striving to please my dad. And to, and um, and when I was when I finally learned that it's okay to fail, and that our failures are actually what point us to success in our life. Um, it was a very huge awakening for me. It was a very pivotal moment in my life where a lot of things shifted and it was, it was pretty difficult for me. Um, but it was an excellent question and, uh, and learning about failures that it is okay to fail. Failure is a real part of life, Mm -hmm. you know, and when we treat it the right way, it pushes us forward, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so looking at myself and um, getting real with myself was the real meat and potatoes in my co- of my recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and getting out of the area. I'm assuming when you were in California, you weren't smoking, or or were you? It was on and off. Um, so the first two years that I was in California, um, I was I knew. I absolutely knew what I was there for. I had a goal of recovery. It was 100% my focus and my drive. Um, But yet I still continued to smoke pot and then get off of it for a while and and go back to it. And and it was just kind of a bumpy road of uh, of trying to lift off and Mm -hmm. take flight. And, um, And it was about the two and a half year mark. You know, I'd have a couple months... And then I'd smoke again and for a month or two, and then I'd go have a couple more months. It was about the two-and-a-half-year mark where I finally got my feet off the ground. I, I got a, a month, and then I got three months, and then six months. Mm-hmm. And then it really took, and and that sobriety stuck, and I was able to, you know, to fly with it. Mm-hmm. And I got five years under my belt of, uh, of pure sobriety mm-hmm. um, until... 
you know, I relapsed and uh, I've relapsed three times in the last eight years. And I actually look at my relapses as kind of huge milestones for how well I have done and how much I've grown. Hmm. Because when, you know, when I used to relapse, um, I'd stay there for six months to a year. It was, you know, that. And so my first relapse within the last eight years um, was two and a half months. Mm -hmm. And I got out of it. I made a conscious choice that I knew what I was doing and I didn't want to do this. This isn't the life I'm living anymore. I stopped, went back to being sober. Very proud of myself. I'm like, this is a huge victory in my mm-hmm. life. Like, I don't even care about the fact that I just relapsed. The fact that I just made a conscious choice to stop, and mm-hmm. I did, is huge to me. Like, mm-hmm. somebody clap for me. Right. <laughs> and then the second time um, I relapsed, it was uh, about three weeks and I, again, I made a conscious choice. Nope. I fell back down. I'm going to get up. I'm going to keep going again, major personal victory. I'm mm-hmm. like, I am getting better. Like I'm getting this thing. The last time I relapsed was literally for two days, mm-hmm. um, smoked some pot for two days. And by the end of the second day, I was like, Nope, I'm here again. I fell back into this circle somehow. Nope. It ends right now. I'm done. And I, I left that relapse thinking, okay, when I look behind me over the last eight years, I really am growing. Mm-hmm. Like, I really am getting stronger. I'm really getting this thing. Yep, I've fallen on my face a few times. But still, within that eight years, even with those three relapses, I have more time sober than I have in all the history of my life behind me. Mm-hmm. And I just realized, this is working. Like what I'm doing is working and it's making my life only continually better. And it's awesome. Mm. Do you think that kind of positivity back when you were kind of at the stage of a couple months without, and then you get back into it and then a couple months without, do you think the positivity was the major shift that really turned things around or, or what, what trend, what do you feel like kind of got you off the ground? Or maybe it was time. Maybe you just needed that extra time. But if you could say someone was trying to get off the ground like you were and they'd have a few months of sobriety and then kind of struggle, is there? did you have any kind of revelation or, or any things that you learned through that experience that would help someone in that in that uh, same yeah, place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of people, including myself, we want to we wanna get sober from the substances because we know it's the right thing to do. Not because we truly want to. And maybe there's a part of us that wants to, but I think for a long time we do it because we know it's right or we know it's what we should do or what people expect of us. But deep in our hearts, we haven't admitted to ourselves yet that we actually like what we're doing. Like a big step for me in my recovery was I had to admit to myself that I actually liked doing drugs. Mm -hmm. And I had to get real with myself and say, okay, I actually really like doing drugs. I really like what they do for me. Mm-hmm. I love everything about it. And I had to admit that to myself. And once I was able to admit that to myself, I was able to go to the next step and say, okay, well, what am I going to do with this then? Mm-hmm. Is this really going to stay in my life? Or am I ready to get over this? And I had to realize that I actually wasn't truly ready to let it go. I was doing it for everybody else. I was doing it because I knew it was the right thing to do. I was doing it because I knew my family wanted me to. Um, Morally, it was the right thing to do. 
But that was all outside of me. It wasn't mm-hmm. what I truly wanted. And I had to admit to myself, okay, I, I actually don't want to get clean. I, I don't want to do this. I want to do the drugs. And it was those realities, those admitting real reality in myself that helped me take these baby steps toward getting to the point to where in my heart and in my life, I was truly ready to get sober. And so for other people out there, um, that's where they have to get to and in order to get sober because you can try to help somebody as much as you want to, and if they're not ready, there's nothing you can do. It's just grasping for the wind. So when a person is truly ready in their heart to get sober because they truly want it for themselves, not because you can't do it for God, you can't do it for religion, for other people, you can't. It has to be for yourself. And when that time comes, that is when the window of opportunity opens and you have that opportunity to get sober. And for me, I, I remember the very day that happened for me. Um, I was, it was in the morning. I was in California. I was getting ready for work. I was in the middle of a relapse. And uh, I was going to go get high before work. And I just took a, just a minute and I said a very real prayer, and I just told the Lord, I said, God, I can't do this. I said, I'm going to go get high this morning before work, and it's what I want to do. But deep in my heart, I was like, I don't want this. This isn't what I want. So even though I'm about to go and do this, I was like, God, can you, can you please just help me somehow? I don't even know. But this is what I'm doing, and I'm just trying to admit that I just don't want this anymore. And um, that was it. And anyway, I I went to go get high, and I didn't. Um, I didn't get high. I, I, went, I went to work, and that was it. That was the last day for five years um, that, I, that I did drugs. And after that, I just, I, um, I focused on my recovery. I told people what was going on. I mean, I already was being honest with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just... That was the first time that I really realized in myself and admitted to myself and to somebody else, which was God at that time, because nobody else was around, that I was really ready to get clean. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that admittance, admitting, okay, I'm really ready, and knowing that I was really ready, that actually made it possible to do it. And that's that's not even the first time we've heard that. It's it's funny. That was Kayla's story last week. She said that when she was finally done, she gave a... These people, the or the people from Serenity, the heron she had with her, and she said, "I'm just ready to be done. I'm so tired mm-hmm. of this. I'm just so yeah. done with this." And it's so interesting to hear that what you were saying about not doing it for other people, because it's it's very interesting that that doing it for someone else would make you feel like you have you're trying to change yourself to fit some kind of mold. You're trying to change yourself, so there's going to be that natural kind of resistance to that. So th- I think that is what pulls you back is because you're like, I'm just doing this for other people. I'm just, I'm just doing this to change so that I'm more acceptable. But then when you realize that, first of all, like you were saying, you yourself want to do it, but then you don't want to do it, yeah. then it becomes like, I want to do this, but I don't want it to be who I am. Right. And so you're kind of able to figure out who you are without it being just a product of other people. Yeah. And, and I think that is the path to real change within yourself is eliminating 
other people from it because otherwise it's just not going to stick. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Not until it's real inside your own heart and mm-hmm. you come face to face with yourself and get real with yourself. Until then, it's it's just it's you're still in the deception. You're still in the mindsets of, you know, the drugs and the substances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. If there is anybody out there that's ready, um, we're here at the Trinity Intake Office today. It's a good place to get your start. Um, we're at 245 North Binkley Street. You can come to Intake, talk to somebody here if you're truly ready. Um, you can also call um, if you are ready and, you know, kind of just get a gauge for what you're in for and, you know, because you're in for a better life. You're in for the rest of your life. Um, you're going to be accepted. You're going to be accepted into a community that's truly looking out for your best interest and truly for you as a human being. Um, so if you are ready to come get help and you want sobriety to be the next stage in your life, you can call 907-714-4521 um, and get your start. Nathan, thanks for joining us this week. Um, This was Aaron and Coburn, and we are you and I for Kenai. Nice. Thanks a lot, guys.